Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. Let's pray. Oh God, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, so that we can hear what you have to say to us this day. And in our hearing, may you also give us the courage to live the words that you write on our hearts, so that day by day, we may become closer to the people you had in mind when you made us in your image. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Our scripture today comes from the book of Leviticus. And if it's not a familiar scripture already, I hope that it will become one. It's one that um, you've heard if you've been around the last couple of years. It's one of my very favorites because I think that the image is so powerful. But you would have to dig to find this for yourself. And most people I've discovered who've ever made a commitment at the start of a new year to read through the entire Bible, which sounds like a great idea if you're trying to take on a big New Year's resolution, they get to Leviticus and they decide they've had enough. And so they just close the Bible. And so that gets them through about January maybe. It's, Leviticus is just a tedious book. You have Genesis and you have Exodus and there are great stories in there, it's gripping narratives and so people are excited to read those stories. But then you get to Leviticus and it's just one law after another. It's 251 laws stacked on top of each other. And some of those laws, I'm willing to bet, that you know by heart. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus gets asked which law is the most important, And he gives that famous answer and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that love your neighbor as yourself part is a quote directly from the book of Leviticus. Now, if you went to look up that law for yourself in the book of Leviticus, you may be surprised to see something as grand and some days impossible as that law followed directly by do not mate different kinds of animals, do not plant your field with two kinds of seeds, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Those laws seem like such banal instructions compared to something as grand as love your neighbor as yourself. And you may think that what I'm about to read is just as mundane and irrelevant as a law about wearing clothing made of two kinds of materials. I won't ask if you are a law-abiding citizen this morning. But I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. This is Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them there for the poor and the alien. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the 80s, our state was having a really bad problem with litter. Maybe you recall this. Texas was spending $25 million a year cleaning up roadside litter. And they invested in what they thought was a solution to the problem, but the problem only got worse as years went on. And so a group of people decided that they would start studying the problem. And after they did some research, they learned that there's a type when it comes to littering. There are predictable characteristics about the person who tends to litter. The person who tends to litter, they found, is between 18 and 35 years old, drives a pickup truck, enjoys country music and sports, and is probably, at least a little bit, anti-authority. So this group realized that if they were going to reduce litter, they'd have to reach someone who fits that profile, who they lovingly began to refer to as Bubba. To reduce litter in the state of Texas, you have to get through to Bubba. Now, how do you get through to Bubba, they wondered. Well, a bigger fine isn't much help because Bubba is anti-authority. Telling Bubba to stop would just encourage him to litter more because no one tells Bubba what to do. So what did they do? They created a campaign called, there you go, and a piece of Northridge trivia. I'm hearing an echo of myself. Are y'all hearing that? Okay, let's just try to fix that real fast. Okay, almost, maybe. We'll, we'll keep working on it. This is a nice piece of Northridge trivia for you because our own Mark Good was instrumental in developing the Don't Mess with Texas campaign. So there are roots in this sanctuary with that successful campaign. And if you know the campaign, then you know the gist was this. If you're a good Texan, if you love your state, you will not defile your state with litter. And you probably recall all of the famous Texan men, the role models, who participated in making commercials for the campaign. Tall Jones, Mike Scott, Nolan Ryan, Lyle Lovett, Willie Nelson. And the campaign worked. The litter bugs, or litter bubbas, as they were lovingly referred to, well, they didn't dare go against their role models. And in just five years, roadside litter declined by how much do you think? Okay, someone said 90% at, at 9 a.m. too. I love the optimism. But, yeah, 75%, which I think is still a really big number. 75% it declined in five years. The Don't Mess with Texas campaign literally changed the landscape of our state. It was visible. 
And if you were here then, maybe you saw this, that roadsides weren't wastelands of 7-Eleven cups and tobacco cartons and fast food trash. It wasn't that anyone had to go to roadsides and plant flowers and grasses to make things prettier. This campaign simply revealed what was always supposed to be true, that the roadside was never meant to be a garbage can. Texans were never meant to nonchalantly throw trash out the side of their pickup trucks without any regard for their state. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, Leviticus says. This is the biblical version of the Don't Mess with Texas campaign. Leviticus gives us our own campaign about the land. It doesn't have a catchy name, but this law did the very same thing as the Don't Mess with Texas campaign. This law changed the very landscape of the day. Scholars tell us that in response to this law, the Hebrew people changed how they harvested their fields. They had square fields, and they began harvesting those squares in a circular fashion, leaving the corners of the field untouched. So picture it, a square field with a big circle in the center. In other words, they never completely finished the job of harvesting the field. They stopped short of harvesting the entire field. And you don't need to know anything about agriculture to know for yourself that this is an extremely inefficient way to harvest. But that image of a circularly harvested square field is an image of generosity. There was a reason for leaving those four corners untouched. As one pastor puts it, well, says Leviticus, the fields were to be left in this imperfectly harvested manner so that those with no land, no capital, and no means of production could work. It was so that the poor could glean enough from the leftovers to make a life for themselves and for their families. The Don't Mess with Texas campaign wasn't a plea for people to embrace new values. It was a reminder for them to simply claim and live out the values that they already held as Texans. It was a a reminder of their identity. The same is true of this. This law was never meant to entice the Hebrew people to be something that they weren't. It was simply meant to remind them of who they already were. It was a reminder that they were generous people because God intends generosity for all of us. And so it must be baked in to even the smallest rhythms of our lives, like harvesting a field, so that we might never forget that we belong to God, and that we belong to one another. 
It is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, so it's a natural time to speak of harvest, but it's also Stewardship Sunday, the day we ask you to embody generosity by making your commitment to the church. And it is true that the pledges you make today to support the ministry of this church are how we budget for the coming year. It's how your session will make hard decisions about what we can keep doing, what we'll have to stop doing, and how to invest in who God is calling us to become. And it's easy to believe that this is a transactional moment, that we ask for money and you give money. Maybe you're secretly hoping that together we give enough money that no one's going to have to come back and ask you for more money. You give money and we spend money, so it's easy for this day to feel like it's all about the church, keeping the lights on, Enabling financial commitments to mission partners, fixing a sound system maybe in the budget for the new year, ensuring that our youth can go on meaningful mission trips and learn about what God is doing elsewhere, supporting vibrant music in worship, funding Friday Night Faith for our children, you name it. Your money does enable a lot of important and faithful ministry in this community. It is true. None of these things would be possible without your commitments. The church does need your money to run. But if turning in a pledge card or making a financial gift to the church feels like doing nothing more than fulfilling the church's budget, then we've all missed the point. Because the church needs money, yes, but the church does not need stewardship. We needs stewardship. As one contemplative puts it, our deepest freedom rests not in our freedom to do what we want to do, but rather in our freedom to become who God wills us to be. Our deepest freedom rests not in our freedom to do what we want to do, but rather in our freedom to become who God wills us to be. That's the invitation of stewardship. It is the chance not to do what you want with your money, but to embrace who God has already willed you to be, which is a generous person. And that has been true of each of us since the very beginning, that we are generous people because God made us that way. Now, I doubt that many of us have literal fields where we can visibly begin harvesting in this inefficient circular pattern, as Leviticus tells, tells us to do, but this law is no less relevant to each of us. Our budgets are our fields. And this is the time that we ask ourselves if we're harvesting every last thing. Are we swinging our sickles close to the edge, leaving nothing untouched? I've had years where giving to the church felt more like a have-to than a get-to when it came time to make a budget. And so I'd account for all the non-negotiables in my life of rent and food and insurance and gas, and then I'd consider the extras. I'd think about the church as an extra, and then I'd just lump it in with everything else that I wanted to do in a given year. And so I'd look at the leftovers 
And I'd start negotiating with myself about what I'd give the church so that I could have enough left over for the things that I wanted to do. And I see so clearly now, years later, that what I was doing in those instances was negotiating away the four corners of my field, which were never up for negotiation in the first place. And when I think about those years, I feel confident saying that I don't think I would have called myself a generous person. My own journey has included learning to claim that about myself. And more often than not, we all have to take that journey because very few people understand from the beginning that God intends for us to be generous. Most of us have to learn that we were made to be generous over the course of years. And that's okay. The Hebrews had to learn this for themselves too. They didn't claim it about their identity from the get-go. That's why there are such explicit instructions in the Bible. It's no different than Texans having to learn to embrace their identity and hold their trash for just a little bit longer until they see a trash can. That's what today is about. It's not about enticing you to do something that feels unnatural. It's not about funding the church's budget. Today is about claiming our freedom to become who God wills us to be. Litter was reduced by 75% in five years because people embraced the values of their identity. Can you imagine what could happen here in the next five years if we all committed to embracing our identity as generous people? Of course, it's nice to imagine the budget increasing by 75% or 90% since we have so many optimists here. But more than that, Imagine what God could do through all of us, a community of people who have claimed who we are. We could be a vision of generosity that our city has never seen. Just imagine how the landscape of our city could be changed by this community. So whether you've claimed this for yourself or not, let me tell you something true. You are a generous person. You can't change that about yourself. You can't change it by withholding gener generosity because God made you to be a generous person. And when you begin to claim it for yourself and live into that God-given identity, I think you'll find that there's no way to receive it than for anything else than what it is, a gift for you and for our world. May it be so. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always.
Amen.